the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the Word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the program on a cold, wet Wednesday afternoon. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is The Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering Bible questions, questions about stuff going on in your life, anything that's on your heart. I'll do the best I can. All you have to do is provide the phone call, 210-340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. Remember, if you're driving in your car, especially with wet streets, be careful. The safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the Call Now banner at the top of your screen. Everything else will be hands-free, and you'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Got a lot going on here at Calvary Chapel tonight. Uh, I'm going to be teaching really a kind of a stunning look at uh, what goes on behind the scenes with spiritual warfare. Uh, Daniel chapter 10, uh, it's, it's interesting, but it's a little frightening as well. You know, the invisible world uh, is always uh, an object of curiosity, but it's just a little bit freaky, too, as well. So that's what I'm going to be teaching on tonight in Daniel chapter 10. Uh, Then we've got two of the most complicated uh, and yet uh, prophetically brilliant chapters Uh, in all of scriptures, Daniel chapter 11 and 12, coming up in the next couple of weeks. It might take me a little longer than a couple of weeks to do it, but uh, then we'll be closing the book of Daniel. Don't know where I'm going to go after that as yet. Tomorrow, Paula will be live in studio on the Date Day Show. That's always interesting and fun for me, so that's on our schedule for tomorrow. So now let's get to some questions. Here is Joe from our email inbox. Hello, Pastor Ron. In 1 Samuel chapter 15 is the account of God through Samuel telling King Saul to go and destroy the Amalekites, men and women, but also children and the newborn. I can understand the men and the women who probably have sinned, but why the babies who have not yet sinned? If God is love, and I know he is, why the innocent babies who haven't had a chance to live? Thank you. You know, Joe, one of the things, and there's, there's... clearly troubling passages in Scripture that people really wrestle with. And I get this question uh, about uh, Joshua's campaign into Canaan and then this chapter, 1 Samuel 15, uh, quite frequently. And the one thing, when you have a troubling passage, the first thing to do is to consider it in the light of God's character, His nature, God's grace, God's love, His passion for people. And if you consider 1 Samuel 15 and the Canaan passages, if you consider them in light of God's mercy and his love, well, then it sort of gives you a new perspective. Now, when God tells King Saul 
uh, to destroy all of the Amalekites, everything alive. Uh, it sounds so radical, but I want you to remember a couple of things. The Amalekites were guilty of picking off the Israelites in the Exodus wilderness, kind of hanging back uh, and, and and picking off the weak and the sick and the old. And, and uh, um, they absolutely were brutal to the people of God. We also need to remember that there were hundreds and hundreds of years that God was patient, allowing them the opportunity to turn from their sin and seek God, but they refused to do that. So this is judgment from God, and it is completely justified. And I want to rephrase because this is important. It's also completely just. So how do we justify then the picture of God killing women and children, even the newborn? And the answer is simple. Those babies who were destroyed, and by the way, Saul was not obedient uh, partially so, but certainly not obedient. Those newborns, you said uh, they haven't even had a chance to live. Well, I think in not having a chance to live, God was rescuing them. God was being patient. God was being loving. He was being merciful. Because those Amalekite children, had they grown up, they would have turned into Amalekites who would have been separated from God forever and ever. And God's mercy, Joe, demands that people have a chance for heaven, and these babies would never have had a chance for heaven had they lived. And so, as they were judged by God, they were also saved by him. And they're not accountable for the actions of their parents, nor will they ever give account of their own actions. And people from this period of time are going to be in heaven forever. And when you look at eternity from the perspective of of the finality, the, the, the temporal nature of life here on earth. That's really important. Now, I'm not justifying killing babies. This certainly isn't um, a, 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 an anti-life statement at all. What I'm saying is that God waited until his patience was exhausted. He knew there were no others who were going to turn. And the children that were not accountable were taken out so they could still make it to heaven. One other important picture here, Joe, that we've got to understand, and and uh, the Amalekites throughout Scripture, in fact, all of the ites, but, but in particular the Amalekites, uh, are an intentional picture by the Holy Spirit of our flesh. And we're always in a battle for the flesh. And so if we take this passage in First Samuel, and, and Saul is told to go and destroy every remnant of, of the Amalekites, he's saying to you and to me, Joe, that we've got to kill every last bit of our flesh because our flesh wants to destroy. Now, had Samuel um, seen Saul's obedience and all the Amalekites would be destroyed, then we wouldn't have had times uh, later down the corridor of time and space as we had, as we see in the book of Esther. Um, The antagonist in the book of Esther was an Amalekite by descent. And had Saul been obedient, he never would have been born. And yet that was the man who allowed um, uh, God, allowed him to be used to come closest to anybody on the history of the earth to completely exterminating Israel as a race. So, Joe, I hope that makes sense to you. Again, the, the takeaway for you and me, one, God is merciful We need to view passages of Scripture from that perspective. And then secondly, this is a lesson to us to deal with our flesh. Don't leave anything alive. Paul says, make no provision for the flesh. If we'll do that, then uh, we understand the import of this passage. So, Joe, I hope that helps. Thank you very, very much for the question. Here is our next question. This one is an anonymous question, also from our email inbox. Uh, Hi, Pastor. My family member and I had a discussion about God helps those who help themselves. I've heard you say that in one of your teachings that this is not in the Bible. Can you expound a little uh, on that? And why do people believe this? And then parenthetically, Anonymous says, I do agree with you on this saying. Um, Anonymous, the Bible is completely antithetical 
to, to the idea of, of we, we need to help ourselves and God will help us as we help ourselves. That's completely antithetical. In other words, not only is it not in the Bible, but it's in opposition to what the Bible teaches. Now, it's not in the Bible. I actually had a guy in, in when we left from California to come to uh, San Antonio. Now, this is 26, more than 26 years ago now. Uh, I remember this guy, and he was being nice. I met him at my old church, and uh, he said, "Well, we want to help you." And I and I said, "I said, well, well, I, I God said I can't make our needs be known, so just pray for us." And he said, "Don't you understand? I want to help you." And I said, "And I appreciate it, but I can't tell you what my needs are." And then he said this. He said, "You know, Ron, God helps those who help themselves." And I said, "Wait a minute." That's not even in the Bible. And he looked so flustered, looked right at me, said, well, it should be. Why do people believe it? It's because they want to. Because we're impatient. We don't want to sit around and wait for God to do stuff. We we don't want to grow in faith. We just want to take care of our issues. And so it's it's much easier to take control of matters, at least it seemingly is much easier to take control of matters and do something about it instead of saying, you know what, I just trust the Lord. So Anonymous, I think that's why they believe it. It's because they want to believe it. And I can't tell you how wrong it is. Every time I've tried to help myself, every time I've stepped away from the, the, the Word of God and the Spirit of God directing my steps, there's been nothing but trouble. Every time I've tried to take matters into my own hands, things get worse, they never get better. And that's what we need to understand. And the, the, the sad truth, Anonymous, is that there's just too many Christians, and this is a heartbreaking thing to say, but there's too many Christians who don't have faith in God. they got more faith in themselves. This statement says, I've got more faith in me than I have in God. And it's all because we want God to move faster. When God doesn't move, we're going to do it. And uh, we we just mess things up. So uh, that's why God helps those who help themselves is in opposition to what the Bible teaches. Thank you for the question. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from uh, our email inbox, another one anonymous. Um, this is a tough one. Pastor Ron, if there were two people involved in a homosexual relationship before knowing Jesus, but then they both get saved, then they both wanted to pursue Jesus together and be celibate. Excuse me, I had to take a sneeze break. Um, And they both wanted to pursue Jesus together and be celibate. Is that right? Or can this be more of a stumbling block? How would you counsel someone in that situation? Uh, Anonymous, I think this is an easy answer, but it's a painful one. Um, um, The pain, of course, is breaking off a relationship. But, uh, you know, Paul says we're to make no provision for the flesh. We're to flee from the scene of temptation over and over and over. And two people who are involved sexually in a sinful relationship, they need to go their separate ways. It's that simple. They can serve the Lord together. They can be celibate. God is proud of them. He's pleased with the choice they made. We get all of that. However, we don't want to play into the devil's wheelhouse. And by that, I mean the enemy is the one who plants those ideas. No, we need to flee from temptation, not to put ourselves right in the crosshairs of temptation. So uh, I would be very aggressive in counseling them to just, it's time to go separate ways. It's time to go separate ways. There's just too much um, memory involved. Uh, there, there's, it, it's just too difficult in a situation like this. I think one of the things, Anonymous, that we have to remember when we um, uh, share Jesus with, with a homosexual, we're basically saying that they need to throw away the person they love, that they're not allowed to have a relationship that brings them that kind of love the way a heterosexual person is. We're condemning them literally to a lifetime of celibacy, um, assuming that the Holy Spirit doesn't change their sexual attraction. Um, and we, we get to realize what a, a an all-consuming move, change in life this really is. 
And so what we need to do if we're going to be generous with people and if we're going to be, be compassionate toward people, we need to counsel them to stay out of the line of fire. And believe me, the enemy is going to pursue them with a vengeance. And the reason he's going to do that is because he's angry. He's angry that they don't want to, um, or, or that they, they no longer are living a life that's going to separate them from God forever. He's angry that the, the lives that he was once, you know, heading down the road for destruction. He's angry that that those um, those people now no longer are under his control. So my counsel would be very clearly to get them out of the line of fire. I hope that makes sense to you. And I said it's sad. It is. These are really difficult things for people to have to deal with. Here is a question from um, no answer or no name here. Um, Pastor Ron, a viper entered the walls of our church today. Hmm. The sole desire of this person a fellow believer was to cause trouble and rant about our church on social media, twisting the truth and spreading gossip. In a situation like this, would it be too terrible to gently and as Christ-like as possible correct this person on social media right where the damage is being done, gently correct and reveal the truth in a public-like manner since the trouble is being caused in a public manner? Or is are we to just turn the other cheek? I'm pretty sure I already know the answer to this, but I'm protective of my church family, and it fills me with danger, or I'm sorry, it fills me with anger when fellow believers have nothing better to do than be petty and gossip and spread lies about churches they don't even go to. Figured at least I could vent to you about it. Thanks for listening. Um, thank you for sharing your heart, and um, you're right, you know the answer. You know what? We should never defend ourselves against false accusations. There's no need to do it. Um, in my 26 plus years here, I've had people spread lies about me. It's the enemy's always planting uh, seeds of, of, of dissonance. Um, and, and every time I've, I've been just at the point where I'm going to defend myself, the Holy Spirit just sits me down and reminds me, I got you. I got you on this. And, you know, the truth is I don't even pay any attention to these kinds of things. And the truth is that more people, most people rather, also don't pay any attention. I mean, a, a person who would do this has a reputation with people. Nobody's taking literally what they say. Nobody is giving them um, um, uh, uh, any place in their hearts or their minds to hold this. So don't worry about what people are saying. Um, one of the things I can tell you, just from our perspective, and, and uh, I don't know if you're talking about our church or or another church. But um, when people want to attack, all I can do is pray for them. And if I know about it, I pray for them. If I don't know about it, it's much better off. So I, I just don't even listen. And I think that's really better to do. So um, I think it would be counterproductive. I think people like this want attention. And uh, if they want attention and you give it to them, then you're sort of feeding the beast. And it's just not something at all that I would be uh, interested in engaging. I just kind of like to say, Jesus, you know the truth. You deal with it. I'm going to be about my father's business. You know, in the book of Nehemiah, there's a great place where uh, it appears finally that that Nehemiah is going to build the, the wall and send Ballad and Tobiah uh, and others are coming in and they said, well, let us join in this work. And, and Nehemiah tells them plainly, you have no part of this work. You go do your thing. We're going to do our thing. You have no part in this work. In other words, I'm not going to partner with you in this. So what I would say to you, based on that and other scriptural examples, is that we simply don't worry about what people are saying. There are always going to be enemies to the work of God. So I hope that makes sense to you. It's not satisfying to our flesh in the least. I get that. One other comment here, and this is for everybody who's 
so heavily invested in social media. I can tell you something. If you'd never been on social media, you never would have seen it. And there wouldn't have been any upset in your heart. There wouldn't have been any anxiety at all. You could have been focused instead of on this person. You could have been focused on Jesus. What about me? And what about today? You could have been focused on what he's called you to do, the gifts that he's given you. And I realize I'm not going to change the world. I realize this with all of my heart. Sometimes I wish I could. I know I can't. I don't try. But I simply cannot understand a single benefit from investing time on social media. Why do we want to know what anybody else thinks or what they're doing? Why would we listen to somebody who's spouting poison? You use the term a viper entered the church. A viper all by itself can do no damage at all. And what we do is we give a voice to these nuts, to these sinners. And the more we listen, I think something more destructive happens. The more we listen, the angrier we get. And the less likely it is that we would pray for these people. And they need prayer because they're lost. And they're standing on the edge of eternity and torment. So I hope that makes sense to you. And again, I know it's not satisfying whatsoever to our flesh. But it, it's, uh, I think it's wise counsel. Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls and questions. Uh, here's a question from Raymond from our email inbox. Uh, Hi, Pastor Ron. My 20-year-old son has decided to get married. My son asked my wife and I if his new wife can move in after they get married. Initially, I was opposed to it and still am. However, my son has promised us to move out in a year. I'm looking forward to being empty nesters. Good for you. However, my wife thinks it's okay. Um, however, my wife thinks it's okay for our future daughter-in-law to move in so they can both save money to get their own things and save for an apartment. I'm willing to compromise to help my son and his new wife for 12 months, but I told my wife I want to do a contract and charge him rent and expenses. Uh, we don't need the money but I believe it was help to them to be more responsible. My response is that I want my son to move out right away so that he can rely on the Lord and not on us. I believe my wife is seeing this from a storge perspective. I'm not sure what that is. Uh, am I wrong to be thinking like this? <clears throat> okay, it's it's storage, not storge. It's just capitalized and no A in it. Uh, from a storage perspective, am I wrong to be thinking like this? Um, Raymond, just off the top of my head, you're not wrong at all. Uh, I think when young people make adult decisions, they need to be made to live adult lives. Uh, It's that simple. Uh, I think they need to be made to live adult lives and deal with adult problems and consequences of the choices they make. And what we want them to do, of course, is to turn to Jesus, to learn to turn to Jesus when, in fact, they're struggling with issues. I also think that a a newly married couple need to go through some difficult things so that God can work on their hearts together. And I think making it easy for them, removing some of the obstacles, is not always healthy. Now, having said that, if you and your wife are in agreement that this could be done, then I think uh, that you do it, you keep your word, you have you have really, really firm rules in place. I think the contract is a great idea, and it needs to be stated at the beginning that 12 months means 12 months, not 12 months in one day, and that you're going to be inflexible on this. And it's because you love them and you want what's best for them. Again, I just think a husband and wife newlyweds need to be alone, away from family members. They need to be on their own so that God can sort of help them navigate through this new life together. I think if they move in with you, that's going to be uh, more difficult for them. Uh, Regarding charging them, let me give you an idea here. Uh, I would definitely charge them rent. Um, And then as a parent, 
Uh, you said you don't need the money as a parent. I would put every penny they gave me in an interest-bearing account, and that would be my wedding present to them um, when they moved out, sort of a delayed savings account. Um, and, and you wouldn't tell them that, just just we're charging the rent. That Can you imagine then they move out in a year, and they're wondering, well, how are we going to have money for an apartment and all the security deposits and things? You can say, oh, by the way, since you're moving out, let me tell you what I've done. And in the process, you've taught them to be responsible. You've taught them that there are bills to be paid. And, and you need to be like any other landlord, make sure they pay on time and in full. So I think that's really important. I'm, on the other side of the break, we're coming up. I'm going to tell a quick story about that in a moment. The other thing I want to point out here is that um, I, I laughed a little bit, and I, I did this admiringly, that you're looking forward to being empty nesters. It's the best time ever. I can honestly tell you, it's the best time ever. Um, that's when Paul and I started to become friends. Now, obviously, when our kids were getting ready to go, I just got saved. But that's when we started to become friends. And, and, and Paula will tell you, empty nest, it's the best thing ever. And that's, that's something that God now can use you and your wife together. Quick story on the other side of the break, and then we'll go on to another question. Hey, this is the word to stand up for life. We've got 30 minutes left in the program. 340-9585. We will be back in two minutes. Back to the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of our program. Quick reminder tonight, Daniel chapter 10. Fascinating and a little bit frightening. Uh, that is our midweek study tonight. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. Raymond, let me tell you a quick story, and and uh, I'm not smart enough to come up with that idea on my own. Uh, in the last job I had, in before I got saved, um, and I worked for a couple of years longer after I got saved there. Um, but uh, I, I ran a, a group of car dealerships, and one of the guys that was my parts manager. A uh, young man, he was in his mid-30s. Um, name was Brian. Uh, he was a wonderful guy, great parts manager. I just loved the kid. And getting to know him a little bit, I said, so how are you doing? He goes, well, I'm getting married pretty soon, but I still live with my parents. I said, wow, that's a long time to live with your parents. He said, but my parents and I, we get along so great. It's just been wonderful. I've lived with them my whole life, and now I'm getting ready to get married. Well, on his wedding day, and he told me that his dad uh, charged him rent the whole time. He, he, he was a really good worker, a very responsible young adult. And, and he said to uh, uh, my dad on my, on my wedding day, his dad gave him a check for all the rent he'd paid since he was 16 years old plus the interest. And, and Brian didn't know that's what his dad was doing. But on his wedding day, that was his wedding gift. They bought a house with that amount of money. And he raised a, a wonderful son. Uh, they were great friends. He was responsible. He knew how to work hard. He knew how to manage money. And it was because his dad taught him those lessons. So if this is something you and your wife agree to do, make them stay faithful to the terms of the contract. Keep reminding them as time comes that you're getting closer and closer. You need to move on that day. I'm not kidding. Uh, and that they need to contribute to the house, not just in terms of rent, but but you're going to charge them rent. Um, they need to contribute to the food that they're going to eat. They need to, to keep the house clean. They need to abide by all of the rules. And, and you expect them to be employed. You expect them to be be um, um, contributors, partners in the household. At the end, you give them all that money back for 12 years. You force them to learn how to save, and uh, and they realize where your heart is all along. Thank you for the question. I love that. 340-9585. This is from Mario from our email inbox. Uh, Hi, Pastor. Is it considered gossiping when spouses tell each other the things they have heard? 
My wife went to go eat with her family, and she told me some things that God does not honor. Is my wife gossiping about her family if she tells me everything that happens? If gossiping, um, I'm sorry, if it is considered gossiping, does that mean she shouldn't tell me anything? If it's not considered gossiping, where is the distinction from gossiping and not gossiping? I believe if it's okay for my wife to share that with me so that we can pray for that. I believe if it is okay, but I think I think the if is not supposed to be there. I believe it's okay for my wife to share that with me so that we can pray for them. Thank you, Pastor. Mario, a couple of things. Gossiping, we need to understand, is when we tell people bad stuff, when we say something bad about somebody, even if it's true, then there's no value. God loves those people. And for us to share those things, it's really important. Now, I'm going to depart from, I think, what is generally, you know, people will say, well, well, husbands and wives should have no secrets. That's true. However, this means your wife was listening to gossip to get that information so that she could tell you. It meant that she was participating in sin, and then she dragged you into her sin. And that's really important. Why would we want to say anything that is not constructive or edifying in our family? Now, I realize we can say, well, but that way we can pray about it. You know, we don't need all the details. God knows everything. And if this is family that she's talking about, well, God knows everything. And you're praying for the family anyway. So we don't need to know all the ugly stuff about somebody to be able to pray for them. And I think here's something that's very important. A husband as the spiritual head of the household needs to be able to say when a wife starts sharing gossip with with him, I think I think the husband needs to be able to say, you know what, why don't we not talk about him? Let's just pray for him right now. And then make sure that the gossip doesn't bleed into the prayer. You know, we, we sometimes can try to sanctify gossip a little bit by by making it sound like prayer. Uh, when the truth is, God knows every detail. And obviously she loves her family, but we don't need to know all the ugly stuff. We want to pray for them. We want to pray for them with the right heart. We want to pray without judging them. And remember, our heart has to be clean before our prayers can be heard. So this is very, very important. And here's what I would say to my wife. And Paula will tell you that I would say this to her. Now, Paula does not spread gossip. And we know a lot of stuff about about people. We don't talk badly about people. There are things I don't want my wife exposed to. Because what I want is her to be able to love them. Paula is like a love bomb. And and if, if I say some ugly stuff about somebody and she has that information, she's not going to be available to be used by God to love them. And so if Paula were to start to tell me something about somebody, uh, I would say, uh, Paula, let's not talk about them that way. Let's just pray. And Paula would do the same for me. So I think gossiping is always sin even if, maybe especially if it's between a husband and wife, and even if that stuff is true, believe me, we don't need to discuss it. This is one of the things, Mario, one of the reasons that social media uh, offends me. Um, It's just gossip. Ugly stuff. Meant to cause harm. Meant to cause pain. And... um, Again, we can try to clean it up with, well, I just want to be able to pray for him, but but I don't think we're being honest when we do that. So uh, I, I just don't think those are things that you share. When you and your wife are alone, talk about edifying things. Talk about the Word of God. Talk about the people in your life who are a blessing to you and pray for them as well. But you don't need to spread the ugly stuff that's not edifying at all. I think that displeases the Lord. I also think very much that it keeps us from being able to um, have our own prayers heard by the Lord. Here is a question from Matthew from our mobile app. Hi, Pastor On. You always say, just be with Jesus. And Matthew, I'm going to keep saying it forever and ever. That's how simple our walk with Jesus is. 
You always say, just be with Jesus. Please let us know what that means to you. What has just be with Jesus done for you? By the way, can I steal that saying from you? Love you. Thank you, Matthew. Um, a couple of things. I always say, just be with Jesus. I'm going to keep saying it. But but here's the reason. We make our walk with God so complicated. You know, if I'm with Jesus, I'm not going to say ugly things about people. I'm not going to think ugly things about people because he loves them. That would offend him. I'm not going to lose my temper because I would be embarrassed if I was with Jesus and I lost my temper. I'm not going to curse because why would I do that when I was with Jesus? When the enemy attacks... I'm going to be able to say, Jesus, you handle that. So really, our walk with Jesus boils down to it being so simple. Just be with Jesus because it's going to change the decisions you make, the choices you make. It's going to change the way you think about things and especially the way you think about people. You're not going to do bad things when you're hanging out with Jesus. And, you know, Matthew, I've been saying this um, Paul will probably correct me tomorrow. But I think probably for the last 10 years, I've been saying just be with Jesus because I came to the place where I was watching people make their lives so difficult, struggling with rules and, and, and struggling with guilt and condemnation and and uh, worldly ideas about people. And um, I just thought, you know what, Lord? I don't deal with that kind of stuff. And I believe the Lord spoke tomorrow and said, that's because we're just hanging out together. And so for me, just be with Jesus is far more than a slogan. Um, A Christmas gift, uh, not too long ago, somebody made a big sign and we have it up in in our house that just be with Jesus. It's a reminder. Our men's retreats themes uh, for forever now are going to be just be with Jesus. And um, the, the fact that I'm aware of Jesus' presence has filled my life with more joy, has helped me deal with temptation, has helped me deal with anger. Now, I'm going to tell you something ugly about me, Matthew. Uh, I am uh, a person naturally with a critical spirit. Uh, I can fix things, not, not, not real things, not broken things. But, I mean, in business and everything else, if business was broken, um, God just has always given me the gift to be able to fix it. I can see what's wrong and fix it. And um, um, so now I realize that when I'm with the Lord, uh, I can say, Jesus, you fix it. Use me. And uh, this is the simplest thing ever to describe how we can have victory in our Christian life. Uh, I, I don't spend a whole bunch of time struggling with temptation. When temptation comes, I want—I just chase it away. I, I take the thoughts captive, make it obedient to Christ. I don't do that when I'm not hanging out with Jesus. When I'm tempted by something, and believe me, when the devil tempts you with something, he tempts you with stuff that you're going to fall for. And when I'm with Jesus, it's not appealing. When I'm not with Jesus, my flesh is just like everybody else's flesh, Matthew. And so what I do is I just say, oh, you know, why I don't want to do it. But in the presence of the Lord, nothing else matters. In the presence of the Lord, nothing else matters. Just being with him uh, in his presence is fullness of joy. And Nehemiah adds, the joy of the Lord is my strength. So if I'm hanging out with Jesus, then not only am I filled with joy, but there's strength in that joy. And I'm I'm always aware that he's there. I don't think there's a, a moment of a day where I'm not aware that Jesus is right here with me, whether it's in the office, walking on the streets, hanging out with Paula, doing this radio program. Jesus is here. And so if my flesh starts to, rare, to, to flare up, then, then, wait a minute, Jesus, we don't want to go there because if I give in to my flesh, Jesus has to check out. And when Jesus is gone, I'm going to mess up and I don't want to mess up. It's just so much easier. One other comment, Matthew. As I have practiced this in my own life, that cynical, critical person that I am at heart, in my flesh, has virtually died And when he tries to 
flare back to life. I just kill him all over again. And Jesus has given me the presence of mind and heart to be able to do that. So that's what it's done for me. And you can steal anything I ever say. No attribution. You can just steal it. Just be with Jesus. Thank you, Matthew. I appreciate that very, very much. 340-9585. Randy, I'm sorry that we missed, we missed your call. You had to hang up. Please uh, feel free to call back. We've got nobody on the line right now. Here's a question from Andrew. Exodus 33 says no one can see God and live, yet it also says Moses and God talked face to face. Is this a contradiction? Uh, Andrew, if you look closely, Exodus 33 doesn't say they talked face to face. They talked as one would talk face to face with a friend. Now, I do the same thing with Jesus. I just answered the question about just be with Jesus. Uh, Jesus, I'll talk to Jesus all day. um, And he's not here physically, but certainly he's here. And we have a conversation. I'm not going crazy. We have a conversation. Um, Moses would be able to talk to God. God would speak back to him. Uh, We've got records of some of their conversations and some of their negotiations. I mean, it's magnificent. But, But the idea there is that God trusted Moses, Moses trusted God, and they had that kind of a relationship. This is the closest uh, illustration in the Old Testament of what a New Testament relationship with Jesus Christ is supposed to be like. I think too often, Andrew, as Christians, we'll get up and we'll read our Bible, do our devotions, or we'll, 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 we'll say our morning prayers, um, uh, but then we kind of go about our day and we forget Jesus is there. And if you get used to talking God as one would talk to another face to face, remember, he is an unapproachable light. And yet we've been given this glorious blessing of being able to approach him. No one can see the face of God and live. And yet Moses could talk to that invisible face just like he would talk to a flesh and blood person. That's what relationship is all about. So no, this is not a contradiction. This just describes a relationship with God in the Old Testament. Good Good question. Thank you, Andrew. Darren says, what is your view of deliverance ministries? Are they biblical? Um, Darren, I know what you mean. No, deliverance ministries generally are not biblical at all. Um, we have been delivered once for all by the sacrifice on the cross of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who is God the Son. So any further deliverance ministries are extra-biblical. That's not a good thing. Uh, and unnecessary. And uh, they, they get our focus on demons and devils and, and all kinds of things instead of understanding the faith that it takes to say, well, I've already been delivered. I've already been delivered. I've had people ask me about uh, deliverance ministries, demon-possessed Christians. There can't be demon-possessed Christians. Real Christians cannot be demon-possessed, period. Now, we can be oppressed by the devil, and we are. He hates us. But we can't be possessed, thus no need for deliverance. I've had people talk to me about deliverance ministries from sinful things, sex addictions. And by the way, that's just... American talk for uh, rationalizing my sin, justifying or excusing my sin. Um, um, uh, Narcotics, alcohol, those kind of things. Jesus has already delivered us. So all we have to do is believe it. So the issue with deliverance ministries, and they usually come out of prosperity churches, but they're not, it's, it's, it's just a demonstration that they don't really have faith in the word of God and the work of God already accomplished. So when somebody comes to me and says, how can I be delivered from this? And I say, are you a born-again Christian? If the answer is yes, you already are. And then I ask them, do you believe that? Do you believe what the Word says? And then we simply go through the Bible and I challenge them to believe what the Bible says. But deliverance ministries are harmful, uh, more harmful than I can communicate. I have horrible stories that I don't have time to share now. Um, They are heretical. And if you are involved in churches with deliverance ministries, Darren, you need to run as far and as fast from them as you possibly can. 
340-9585 for your live calls. Nancy is next. She says, my high schoolers will be going to college in the next couple of years. It terrifies me. How can I prepare them? Um, Nancy, let me talk about the preparation first, and then I'm going to opine a little bit, and I don't normally do that. Um, uh, Preparing them. First of all, you and your husband need to be sure, if there is a husband, you don't say, but um, you need to be sure that your walk with God is vibrant and fruitful. Your kids need to see that you love Jesus, that their father loves Jesus, that you're walking together as a husband and wife, that there's joy in the house. You need to to demonstrate that your faith is such that the things that are uh, cause other people fear don't cause you fear because you're leaning on Jesus Christ. How many times did Jesus say, do not worry or do not be afraid, and yet literally most of us don't believe that and we live in fear. Um, show your high schoolers that your Jesus is real. I'll say this quickly. I got saved because I knew that Paula's Jesus was real. I tried to make her life miserable. I tried to steal her joy and I couldn't do it. And so when my life fell apart, I called out for Paula's Jesus and I did it because I knew he was real. I didn't know him but I knew she did, and I knew he was real. Our kids need to see mom and dad's Jesus is real, and they really do trust him. They don't freak out like the rest of the world does when bad things happen, that they're men and women of prayer, that they really believe in the word of God, and that their lives are on that consistent level. That, your witness, will do more to solidifying their faith than anything else. Now, having said that, um, make sure they're in the Word, whether they want to or not. Uh, as parents, you have the the right to establish the rules in the house. The rules in the house, you're going to spend uh, 30 minutes a day in the Word. We're going to have family devotions together. Um, we're going to go to church. It doesn't matter what they want to do. You're in charge. And what you're doing is you're sort of helping them cram for a test that's pass-fail. When they get out into the world and they've got to make their own choices, it's pass or fail. And, um, and and you need to get the word into them. And I know, of course, you're praying for them uh, for sure. Now, here's my opinion about these things. I realize that we live in a world that says without a college education, uh, nobody can make anything out of the, their lives. They can't be successful. That's simply a lie from the pit of hell. And Nancy, when you send your high schoolers to college... You're going to be paying, apart from scholarships and things, but you're going to be paying for the privilege of them going to college. And with your money, they're going to hire professors and educators and uh, distribute textbooks that try to destroy the very faith that you've raised your children to treasure. And I'm just not sure that's a good idea anymore. Uh, The world that we live in isn't looking for uh, college-degreed personnel. There are so many people with these useless liberal arts degrees, and they can't even get a job. And they're sitting at home playing video games. Um, You've got to be strong in your faith. Or this avalanche of worldliness, the secular ideas about things in this world are going to overwhelm them. And as a parent, I simply wouldn't pay any institution that's going to try to steal Jesus from my children. I just don't understand the value of that. And so I I, I don't recommend that, that kids go to college anymore. Um, we have a school here. Uh, we have 100% placement uh, in our school, graduating seniors from the beginning. They've all been accepted to college. A lot of them haven't gone. And that's okay. And they're doing well because they love Jesus. I think uh, start asking them, what is God doing in your life? What is God calling you to do? What gifts do you believe that God has given you? And and you've still got a couple of years, so what you need to do is sort of put them in this crash course. But don't feel obligated for them to go to college. Maybe send them uh, to a Bible college. Uh, maybe uh, send them uh, to, to, to the mission field or something like that where God can really get them alone. 
But believe me, um, if their faith in Jesus isn't rock solid, um, they're going to come back completely different kids than the kids that you sent to college in the first place. This is a terrible thing to have to say, but to uh, to pay for it and, and in most cases to go into debt, to have people teach your children everything you taught them was wrong, that it was stupid, boy, that's a big price to pay. So protect your high schoolers. You and your husband, if there is a husband involved, pray regularly about God's wisdom. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask the Lord who gives it generously, James says. So pray for the wisdom about what to do. But in the meantime, you start feeding into them right now the things that will help their walk be really, really solid. So thank you, Nancy. I hope that helps. Uh, and, and I realize that most people take that kind of counsel and just dismiss it because, oh, you got to go to college. We've been so brainwashed uh, by that from from for many, many years. Tina says, my brother struggles with addiction. He is a believer. Why won't God take his addictions away from him? Tina, I'll answer you the same way I answered the other question. God already has taken the addictions away. All your brother has to do is give them to Jesus. The power that raised Christ from the dead, if he's a real believer, that power lives in him. And that power is enough to overcome his addictions. We don't need 12-step groups. We don't need psychologists or psychiatrists. We need more Jesus. Tina, I'm going to leave this question on the board and try to come back to it tomorrow because i got more information than that. Hey, thanks for tuning in. You've been listening to The Word to Stand Up for Life. Remember, Paul is going to be live in studio with us tomorrow on the date day edition of the program. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Lord willing, I'll be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word. We'll see you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.